0: Thank you, gentlemen, for singing for us and taking our hearts before the throne of grace. Wonderful job. As we look into the Word of God, Matthew chapter 11, as we continue our study, today's sermon is entitled, The Marks of True Greatness. The Marks of True Greatness. And we find our text this morning in verses 7 down through verse 15, verses 7 down through verse 15, Matthew chapter 11. So join me there in the Word of God. Now, as they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Verse 8, But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? Third time, Jesus asks this question. Verse 8, Excuse me, verse 9. A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Then verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, this is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing uh, this morning. The world has many ways by which it measures greatness, doesn't it? Awards are given out in every category of life, awards for the Emmys, award for the Oscars, the Nobel Peace Prize. We can think categorically regarding intellectual achievement, political, military leadership, scientific or medical discoveries, wealth and power. Athletics, sports, generous philanthropy. The world loves rewards. The world loves awards. The world loves to recognize signs of greatness. In fact, the arguments are ever ongoing about who is the greatest, right? Who is the greatest, LeBron or Michael Jordan? What is the greatest football team ever to be fielded? And on and on those types of arguments go. But here in our text, we have a stunning verse, what we find in verse 11, where Jesus says to his disciples, but more specifically, he turns to the crowd who are present there that day, and he immediately begins to defend John the Baptist to those who've just heard the previous verses. And he says again, direct your attention to verse 11, assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Here in our text, we see that Jesus sets forth God's measure of true, profound greatness. And as always, God's ways, God's standards are opposite of the world's ways. God's ways are not our ways. His his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The scriptures are replete with his teaching. With this understanding, Paul mentions this explicitly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God chooses not to use this world's standard, this world's famous quote unquote personalities to do his kingdom work. In fact, the people that God uses are solely that, the people that he chooses. Now, last week we saw John's question beginning at the beginning of chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, and it was surprising to us, it was comforting. For us as well as we examined this raw authenticity of John's life, how the Holy Spirit does not hide or shield these struggles of God's choicest saints or servants from us as his people. We can take God at his word, knowing that John's not only the mighty, bold preacher preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, but as we saw last week, John has been spending months and months in a dark hole in prison. This man of the great outdoors, who is a spiritual man, is experiencing hard physiological circumstantial situations. He has nothing but time to consider his ministry. He has nothing but time to consider his preaching. He's reflecting, he's wondering, and his circumstances don't seem to add up to what he was expecting out of his ministry and out of life. He's wondering, what is it that he missed? Yet he knows who Jesus is. Remember, he recognized Jesus from the very womb. Luke chapter 1. He jumped in response to the presence of Christ. So this is a believer's struggle. This is a believer's doubt. And he says, what we say along with the disciples, when we struggle as well, Lord, we believe. As Peter would say, help my unbelief. Have you ever found yourself in such a moment? I have. And here we find John the Baptist struggling. And we find John the Baptist coming to the right source with his doubts, don't we? He comes to Jesus sending his messengers. Are you the one or do we look for someone else? Now as he does this, John the Baptist is exposing himself. John the Baptist is vulnerable is a word we often hear today. Those who are present hearing the teaching ministry of Christ, if you go back to chapter 11, just verse 1, same chapter, but go back to verse 1, That text, remember, tells us that Jesus finished commanding his disciples. He departed from there. He's continued to teach and preach in their cities. So it's in this public ministry context that John's disciples come and ask him this question. And there are many who hear it. And in the crowd that day, there are those who are mocking. There are those who in the hidden man of their heart, both outwardly and inwardly, are saying, Are you hearing this? John the Baptist is asking this question of all people. The mighty preacher in the wilderness who told us, some of the Pharisees and Sadducees who went to hear John preach, are now following Jesus around, and they're scorning John. And they see this low moment as one of derision, a one to gloat in, one to pride in. This is the background context to this, and that's why Jesus turns and immediately begins to defend his child, if you will, begins to defend his messenger. You could say it like this the message jesus is the word made flesh jesus is the gospel made visible the message begins to defend the messenger he begins to defend the man who cleared the way for his coming and here in matthew chapter 11 jesus presents for us the clearest passage on the character and testimony of this messenger of this herald the character of john the baptist and what we find here in this text is the lord gives us a portrait of a godly man, the portrait of a man who has faithfully served Christ, lived for Christ, and preached the advancement of this kingdom, and it's cost him up until this very point is the reason he is in prison. First of all, I want you to note this morning as we walk through this text, first of all, John's calling. John's calling. And again, very quickly, by way of reference, we remind ourselves that John was a prophet. That's what the scripture readings this morning have been telling us, haven't they? beginning in Malachi chapter 4, this prophet of the, with the spirit of Elijah was foretold. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah receives the news that this miracle baby, this miracle child that he has given will be the one that was prophesied, not, not the Messiah, but the other one that was prophesied, the herald. We are reminded here that he was a prophet. In fact, he was the greatest prophet. So not just that the Messiah was coming, but John chapter 1, verse 6 tells us, there was a man sent from God whose name was, was John. John was a preacher. John was a herald. John was a forerunner. John was a paver. And he did that faithfully and boldly. We see, first of all, John's calling. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. That's why we're only going to be there briefly. We'll come back to John's calling a little bit later. We'll come back to verse 11 about how Jesus says, he was the greatest. But on that note, very quickly, this prophet comes, John the Baptist' ministry comes, you got to remember the context, after 400 silent years. God who is a communicating God. Our God who, Genesis 1-1 reveals Him to us, is the God who speaks, the God who communicates, the God who's given us His word, the God who has given us His messengers. It all culminates in this herald, after 400 silent years, we see birth in the middle of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Luke chapter 1. We see, after 400 silent years, boom, on the scene, the greatest of all prophets, greater than Elijah, greater than Moses, greater than David, greater than Elisha, is John the Baptist. And yet, in our passage and in our text, Jesus says, Now this is the greatest, redefining all levels, but yet he who is least. And the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We're going to look at what that means here this morning. Secondly, not only John's calling, but I want us to take note of John's character. And this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time here this morning. Who is the type of person that God uses? When we look at this passage, we find out. When we look at John's character and what the Holy Spirit wants us to know, what Jesus wants us to know about his servant. Friends, we see a portrait of someone who God uses the Holy Spirit changes and fills and blesses for the work of the ministry. Now verse 7 says there in the text, it says, And as they, John's disciples, departed to take back that message that Jesus gave to them to go comfort John. Yes, I am he. Hey, disciples of John, go tell him that the Messiah is here. Go tell him that the works of the kingdom are being made manifest. And no, he's not missed it. No, there's not another. But I am fulfilling all prophecy just as you fulfilled prophecy as well. And here, beginning in verse 7, Jesus begins to defend John. He wants those present that day to know that they are not at odds. The messenger affirms the Messiah, and the Messiah affirms the messenger. They're whispering. And as the text often tells us in these gospel records, Jesus knows their thoughts. I don't know your thoughts this morning, and I don't want to know your thoughts. But when Jesus taught, the text regularly tells us he knew what was in man. He knew the heart of them. So when you come to a text like Matthew chapter 11, you see Jesus turn on a dime and he immediately begins to say something very specific. There's a background context. The reason he's saying this is because they're thinking that. And Jesus is correcting it and defending his, his servant. The first thing we see is a hallmark of John's character and really the children of God. By way of application. And what are the children of the citizens of the kingdom of God? What do they look like? Well, the first thing we see here is humility. Humility. John was a humble man. And the lesson for us here is this. Wherever godliness exists, those who claim the name of Christ, humility exists. Humility is the rarest of flowers, spiritual blooms, spiritual fruit in the life of the Christian. So friends, here this morning, if we're not growing in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, one thing we know for certain, we're not growing in humility. Godliness and humility go hand in hand. He was humble. He comes to Jesus, as we previously saw, with his questions. John is not one of those that languishes in silence. John is not one of those growing in hardness of heart. John is not one of those who's too prideful to come to the Savior. John asks a question. And what I love here in this text is that Jesus is not offended by the question. There's times it seems as if Jesus is offended by questions, but whenever that happens, it's usually coming from a prideful person, coming from a religious leader who should know better, where Jesus says, have you not read? Jesus will respond to a question with a question. But Jesus will never bruise a a reed that is already broken. Jesus will never destroy someone who's truly struggling. And here we find that he affirms and strengthens his messenger. He is not offended by the question. In fact, John Calvin says this on this passage. He says, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. And the scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. And here we see Jesus as the ultimate pastor shepherd, not rebuking John, you could say, but turning and supporting and ministering to John. And yet rebuking those who are scorning in their hearts this humble servant of God. And another thing I just want to take, and remember, from last week, John came directly to Christ with his struggle, with his sin. Jesus sends this message back, and John is a humble servant of God. He came to Jesus with his concerns and with his fears, and he's willing to be corrected. How do you know? Just a few chapters over, we see that John is still at the helm we see that John does not recant. We see that John loses his life for the sake of the message of the Messiah. This teaches us a very important lesson, friends. Can we be counseled? Can we be corrected? Can we be guided? Do we come to Christ with our needs and our concerns, or do we go to others? Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8 simply says this, Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. How do you respond to counsel? How do you respond to the wise words given to us from the Lord? Verse 9, following, it says, Give instruction to a wise person, and he will still become wiser. Teach a righteous person, and he will increase in his insight. Proverbs 17, verse 10, Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. We see here that John is a humble man. His character is on full display, even for us today. John's humility was already on display in his public preaching ministry. If you remember John chapter 1, John chapter 3, where he points away from himself. He says, he, pointing to Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. And if ever you need a verse for life, friends, that's our verse. If you don't have a life verse, let me give you one this morning. All of Scripture, yes. Just remember John 3.30, he must increase, I must decrease. In any situation you find yourself going through, look at the humility of John. Let Christ be magnified. Let Christ continue. Let me decrease. In fact, turn to John chapter 3, very quickly, verse 22, as we consider the humility of John the Baptist. John had no problem turning the attention from himself and pointing to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. John knew his message, John knew his assignment. John had no goals of building a platform here on this earth. John didn't even have Twitter or, or Facebook or even TikTok or nothing to communicate his message. He was not concerned with drawing people to himself and being facetious, of course. He Didn't write any books. He had one message. And when he saw that the King of kings and the Lord of lords and Messiah was here, he immediately turns the attention from himself. And you'll see the greater passage here, John three twenty two. Now, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, John was also baptizing in Anan near Salim because there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Notice the distinction there. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. This is an opportunity for John to get defensive. This is an opportunity for John to say, yeah, what, what about me? What about my ministry here? What about my focus? Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, But I have sent, been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but a friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now notice here. Therefore his joy is mine and is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Here we see the humility of John. John doesn't think he has all the answers. John knows his role. John knows his place. And John comes to the source with all of his struggles. This takes humility, doesn't it? You say, well, LeGrand, why do you keep saying that? We see John at his best is humble. We see John at his worst is humble. In fact, it's a mark of spiritual pride to not confess your sins. It's a mark of spiritual pride to, quote, never struggle. It's a mark of spiritual pride to not examine our hearts. Do we have the humility to examine ourselves, to examine to see if we have that kind of humility that confesses sin, to come to Christ with all of that? Or do we seek to continue to live center stage and Jesus is content in our life to be put to the backstage or in second role, second place? Here we find that John is completely focused on the glory of God. John's humility. Secondly, we see in verse 7, the stability that he exhibits. Stability, not only humility, but stability. Verse 7, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Now, this is where Jesus turns and he asks three unusual questions right in a row. He turns to them, the crowd there and he says, what were you looking back in the preaching ministry of John, when John was in his heyday, if you will, In fact, when you look in Matthew chapter 1 and 2, we won't turn there, but you see that the text says that everyone, everyone went to hear John preach. So Jesus is speaking out of that clamor. Jesus is speaking out of that bustling activity. And he asked him, remember in your heart, why did you ever go hear him in the first place? Was John a reed, verse 7, shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? Jesus loves rhetorical questions. Jesus is the quintessential teacher, pastor-preacher. And he often asks questions so that you will examine your heart, so that you will think, so that you will come to the conclusion, so that you will come to the answer. And that's what he's doing here. He points to the hallmarks of character that is the opposite of John the Baptist. He says, what did you go out to see? They went to hear John because he was bold. The crowds went to hear, John, because after 400 years of silence, there was a man who had the spirit of Elijah. He was convictional. And I will just remind you today, even today, bold men are rare. Even today, men of conviction are rare. People have left to nothing else like to watch them burn, older men have said. "It's Just to simply be amazed, I believe it was ben, ben Franklin went to hear George Whitfield again and again and again. One of Ben Franklin's atheistic friends said, Ben why are you going to go hear this man preach? Like You don't believe in that, do you? And Ben Franklin said, oh, absolutely not. Well, why do you go hear him preach? He said, because he believes in it. He was amazed and mesmerized at how someone would completely give themselves, speaking of George Whitfield, over to the preaching of the gospel to be a, a fool for Christ's sake. And that's exactly what Jesus is pointing the crowd to here. Why did you ever go hear him? You didn't go hear him because he was a fragile flower. You didn't go listen to John the Baptist because he was winsome. You didn't go hear John the Baptist because he was a jellyfish who had no convictions. Why did you go hear John? What did you see when you went and heard him? Notice the word reed here in our text. A reed that Jesus is referring to is what some people say is a tall 10 to 12 foot cane, a very thin flower cluster and when the winds would come along, these reeds are so thin and weak that they would lay flat on the ground at the slightest of breezes, tossing and tumbling with the wind. The idea is is one of no stability, no backbone, no substance. If, if the force is coming this way today, then, then they'll go that way, path of least resistance. If the, if the force is going this way, then that's where they'll go. And, and quite frankly, friends, That's where so many of God's messengers are today. They don't know who they are. They don't stand upon God's word. They're constantly saying, well, where are the winds blowing? We see many of our political evangelical leaders backtracking. Yesterday they were here, but today they're over here. They're just simply tossed about by every wind of doctrine, if you will. Or just moving about to what are the crowds saying? What will appease these people? What will appease this constituency? John the Baptist had one aim, one concern, and it was none of that. But simply, is he being faithful? Am I being faithful, John the Baptist would say, to the message? And that is exactly why Jesus is saying, that's why you went to go here and preach. Read. Second word there is shaken. To shake means to cause, to move, uh, to waver. And Far too often, that is exactly what we as Christians are prone to do when pressure comes or circumstances come. But that is not John the Baptist. Friends, as we make application to our own lives, as we see John's stability, he's fixed as he looks to Christ, the author and the finisher of his faith. He runs to Christ with his doubts. But what about me and what about you? Are we fixed Christians or are we, as James describes, double minded and as as the context here, unstable in all of our ways? Friends, I'm afraid many of us are unstable because we're not rooted and fixed and established in Christ and in his word. We're uncertain today because we have a decision-making process that goes like this. It's personality-based. A problem comes our way. We think, well, how is this person going to respond? Or how is this person going to respond? And so we're driven about by every wind of personality. We say, well, I have a fear of them. I don't want to make them too upset. Or I have a fear of them and I don't want to make them upset. And as Proverbs says, the fear of man brings a snare. It does. It's real. It's real. And Christian, that's why I point you to the authority and the standard of Scripture. That's why I point you to Christ. Don't be a personality-based person who's simply looking to make people happy, but simply say, what does the Scripture say? And root yourself, ground yourself in the Word of God. And Jesus says, this is exactly the reason you went to go hear John the Baptist. He wasn't a reed. He was an oak. He wasn't shaken about. He was rooted. He was fixed. And he wasn't swayed by any of you. And he looked you in the eye and he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He looked at some of you and said, you are vipers. That message wouldn't sell well today, <laughs> would it? Not even the message of repentance today people would desire to hear. Just a word here by application. God gives, as we think about this word stable, this character aspect of John's character displayed here in the scripture. One of the greatest gifts that God can give to his church is stable men men who are rooted in Christ, who grow strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I'll tell you this, stable men lead to stable churches. In Ephesians chapter four, verse 11, turn there very quickly with me. This is a mark of God's messenger. This is a mark of who God uses, and this is a mark of the kingdom of God. This is a mark of the bride of Christ. Too many Christians today are whoever they're around most recently. Is whoever the biggest voice is in their life? If they're with you, they agree with you. If they're with this person, they agree with that person. If they're with this person, they they're just constantly swayed. They're not rooted and fixed. Stable men of God lead to stable churches. To make application for our purposes today, Ephesians four verse eleven, Paul writes. He says, and he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Well, when does that, how long does that go? Verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now notice here, stability, so that we should no longer be children, what is children? This is spiritual language that John also uses in 1 John. He says, I desire that you be old men, young men, children. Like There's a spiritual category that is given in the scriptures that you're either a little one, you're, you're a young one who the word of God is filled and controls you, or you're an older one who's, at, who's mature in grace. And Paul here says, so that you would no longer be children tossed to and fro like a reed and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Stability. Stable churches are the result and the fruit of a ministry of men like John the Baptist who boldly preach and stand upon the authority of God's Word. We're not ashamed of Christ. And Grace Church, I just want to remind you, our goal is to be rooted in the Word of God, to never be ashamed of Christ. Christ. And as we continue to grow in this increasing age and as the the Lord continues to tarry and we move forward, our question is always going to be, what does God's word say? Not are we concerned about what the city council says. What does God's word say? Not who is the boldest personality in the community or even in the church. What says the scriptures? Help us, Lord. Give us light. Maturity produces stability. May the Lord help us to consider. And Jonathan Edwards, when he turned 19 came up with his famous list of resolutions. Maybe you've heard of them, right? He turned 19, and Jonathan Edwards had an ambition as America is what some would say. He didn't say this, but many have titled him America's greatest theological mind that God has ever gifted to this continent. He started his resolutions with this, resolved. Number one, resolved, I will live for God, period. Number two, resolved, if no one else does, I still will. This is the kind of man that John the Baptist was. He was a stable man because he was a humble man. Thirdly, we see here, just as we consider John's character, our text tells us very explicitly that John was a loyal man. Going back to Matthew chapter 11, that John was a loyal man. In our text, we find in verse seven, he not only does Jesus ask the first question, what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind verse 8 introduces to us the second question, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Here's what we need to know. John the Baptist did not have a price. Those who wore soft clothing were those who who lived in king's houses, when Herod received the news of the wise men coming to him that a king was born, who did Herod immediately turn to? He turned to scribes, he turned to those who had access to the law, people that he already had on his own payroll. In First Kings chapter 22, we see in that Old Testament context and passage that Ahab was constantly wanting to know, and the kings were wanting to know, what is it that God wants us to do? And they only wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. And the king who partnered with Ahab said, let's consider the counsel of the prophets. And who did Ahab turn to? He turned to 400 of his own. He had his own prophets on payroll. These were men in soft clothing, (laughs) if you will. These are men who had a price. These are men who the king or the political or powerful influence would come along and say, hey, why don't you come be one of our advisors? We'll give you money every month. We'll help support you. And you, When we need you, you come to our purposes and give us wisdom, give us counsel. And this is the question that Jesus points out. John was a loyal, faithful servant. John did not have a price. If Herod had come to him, no, he didn't care. If, if somebody else had come to him and said, if you'll just stop preaching that message, we'll give you X amount of dollars and maybe even a, a car to ride in and maybe a new suit of clothes. Like we see in other passages, the The man of God who sold out for 10 shekels and a change of clothing in the Old Testament. All throughout history, the rich and powerful and famous have seen the men of God or men like John who are influential, convictional and bold and just known if we can get him on our side, then we can control the narrative or or we can control what happens or we can control a whole group of people over there if if he just has a price. If we could just get him in some some nice clothes, he'll look different than everybody else. We'll give him a package that's going to be too hard to refuse. How much will it be? I have a uh, a story from a man that I revered, Brother Don Graham, uh, told of a man that he often knew of who in in a town down in Louisiana would preach the gospel and God began to bless his ministry. God began to use it to bring many people to Christ. And the guy was a young pastor just over time, just the church began to grow, but it began to very specifically attack a number of shady industries in this town that began to affect the, the commerce, if you will. One day, the magnet who was behind a number of these small, shady corporations that ultimately this preacher was affecting his, his financial cash flow or whatever, came into him and said, try to buy him off, essentially. If you'll just not preach on that, if you'll just stay away from that, friends, listen, so surely we can come to a deal. Oftentimes, men find themselves in that type of situation. But the point that we see here in this text is that John, no, was not in soft clothing. He was one who had taken an Azurite vow. He was a wilderness man. He was a wild man in a sense. He was an outdoorsman. He was one who was distinctly different. He was not lured by any of this world's comforts or tastes. We see that John the Baptist had completely given himself over to the purposes of God and the will of God. He was loyal to Christ and had not given himself over to the comforts of this life. Now, this word soft clothing can mean, in its context and usage, effeminacy. It can mean that. I don't think that's the purposes here that Jesus is saying. I don't think Jesus is saying John was not effeminate. I think he's pointing to the fact that John was not seduced by a pampered life. He knew his role. He knew his assignment. King's palaces means you didn't see John Because he didn't live in the luxury of the king, dwelling on marble floors, sold out the message of being a herald for the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Friends, what about us? Are we faithful to the entrusted word that Paul loves to describe again and again in the epistles? Timothy, be faithful to the entrusted word. God has entrusted you with the word of God. Timothy, don't lose it. Be faithful to it, and to the church at large, not only be faithful to the entrusted word, but be faithful to the entrusted gospel message. Church, we are stewards of the mysteries of God. Are we faithful to that? Are we loyal to that? Or do we sell out? You say, what are you talking about, Larry? Do we sell out? Do we find ourselves selling out when God gives us opportunity to speak, and yet we know it may cost us something? Do we fall into a role in a play where we know how to just get in line when we're here and and get in line when we're there? Have any of us ever experienced or tasted of what it's like to be alone for Christ or to say, you know what, you're going to lose your job if you keep doing that. Okay, I want to honor you. I want to do this, but I must be faithful to the message of the gospel. And if this man comes to me for counsel, I'm going to counsel him with wise counsel. I'm going to honor you, I'm going to honor Christ. And if I have to pick between the two, I choose Christ. Friends, if you don't think that day is coming more and more, this is what Jesus wants you to know, what we've been looking at in Matthew chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 11. And John the Baptist is exhibit A here. Before the disciples and before the apostles will ever lose their heads, John the Baptist will lose his. And yet John is loyal. It is costing John something. It's why he's having a a moment. And yet he is established, he is reinforced by the word of God. In verse 9 we see, Another hallmark of John's character and its faithfulness. May God put these same Spirit-infused attributes as the fruit of the Spirit in our lives as well. What we see here in verse 9 is this question, this third question that Jesus asks. He says this, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. What we find here in this passage is that John the Baptist, we come back to that calling where John is faithful to that calling. We saw point number one, his calling. Who is this man again? He is the chosen prophesied prophet. He's the greatest prophet because he's the prophesied prophet. They they said that this man would come and when he comes you will know the Messiah is coming because of this herald. He is the prophesied prophet and yet he prophesied about the Messiah. He himself was prophesied about, and then when he came, his message was to point to the greater King of kings and Lord of lords. And John was faithful to that. He was a faithful messenger for Christ. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is Jeremiah's testimony, but it was also John's testimony because he was a miracle child. In one sense, we're all miracle children, amen? Life is a gift of God. Birth is a gift of God. God gives all life. He takes life. Jeremiah's testimony is John the Baptist's testimony when he says this, before I, God says to him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, and I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And that's exactly what God did to John the Baptist as well. We saw that in the scripture readings this morning. Turn with me, if you don't mind, back to Malachi, just briefly. Malachi chapter 3. This is the faithful prophet. Verse, chapter 3, verse 1, where the prophecy was given. This is the prophesied prophet, you could say. Malachi, just going back a couple of pages, you've got Matthew and then Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, just by way of reminder. The coming messenger, how will we know the Messiah is near? Well, you will know because of the coming messenger. Malachi 3, verse 1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple Even the messenger of the covenant. Then jumping over to chapter 4, how will we know what this individual is like? Look at chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Parents, if you're ever looking for a prayer, by the way, to pray for your marriage, for your children. Maybe you've heard me pray it over you if I've ever prayed with you. It's a prayer that I often pray, but I I get it from this. My parents prayed it over me. It comes from right here, verse 6. Just touching on it since we're here. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. If you ever wonder what to pray for someone, pray that. God, would you turn the heart of this husband toward his wife? Would you continue to turn the heart of this wife towards this husband? Both of their hearts towards Christ. Would you bless this home? Father, would you turn the hearts of these children towards their parents? Would you grow this family unit and strengthen them in the work and in the name of the Lord? But going back to verse five, this prophesied prophet, it sounds like it's the second coming of Elijah, but it's not. Now go with me very quickly to Luke chapter one, the second scripture reading, which I want to bring these together. How can we know that John is this faithful prophet, the prophesied prophet? Well, no, it's not the second coming of Elijah. Notice the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here says, Luke 1 verse 16. When the angel, verse 13, comes to him and says, Don't be afraid, Zacharias. I'm giving you a son. The Lord is giving you a son. Your prayer is heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. Verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is John, the faithful prophet, the prophesied prophet, and yet, he points us to Jesus, the true and greater prophet, the ultimate prophet, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He is the Messiah. And John was faithful to his calling, knowing what he was appointed for, knowing what he was chosen for, knowing what he was consecrated for, and that leads us to verse eleven to this amazing statement, where Jesus says, "Assuredly, I say to you." Going back to Luke, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter eleven, our, our key text, our main point here. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John is the greatest in the Old Testament era, BC, before the cross. But then Jesus tells those who are in his hearing, whether it's a little child or the least of these in this kingdom, the least of these in this new covenant of grace that I am working out as I go to the cross, that I'm establishing as I'm choosing my people, as I'm dying for my people, as I'm coming to institute the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at here. How can we know there's conviction? There is gospel preaching. The Holy Spirit is regenerating the lost and calling God's people to, them, to himself. And as I do that, you can know that the kingdom of heaven is present. And yet the least, even if it's a child or someone who's not considered very valuable in this world, the least, whoever the least is. He says, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Wow. John the Baptist who had the ultimate privilege, and yet Jesus says, there's a new definition of greatness here. Friends, as we think about those who are mentally incapable, the life in the womb, the least of these, children, So we think about making disciples of the next generation. You are doing the most important work there is. These are greater than he. Speaking of John the Baptist. If you ever wonder, is what I'm doing today significant? Moms and dads at home, as you, as you seek to just live faithful, a, a godly and a quiet life for the Lord, and raise up your children to the nurture and admonition of the Lord, praying for them, knowing that only He can turn their hearts towards Him, only He can bring about fruit in their lives. If you're ever wondering, is what I'm doing important? Absolutely. The least here in the kingdom of heaven are greater than He. As we do the gospel work, as we advance the kingdom, as we advance the name of Christ. And lastly, we come not only... John's calling, number one. Number two, we've looked at the highlights of John's character and those that God uses. But number three, in verse 12, we see John's commitment. John's commitment. And what is that commitment? In verse 12, we see And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is come. In my study of this text, this is one of the more difficult verses that you come across in in the Gospels. It can go two ways. It can mean two things. And I believe that it means the second. I believe in one aspect it means both meanings, both renderings. But ultimately, I believe it means the second. There's a sense to where the kingdom of heaven suffers violence in the sense of passiveness it can be rendered in a pa- the the verb here can be rendered in a passive way but it can also be in the middle voice which means the kingdom heaven is, uh, is advancing and i believe it's both we find both here in the scriptures and i'll start with the first one here in verse 12 and from the days of john the baptist until now the kingdom of heaven suffers violence well exhibit a is john right john's in prison right now for preaching the gospel john had the boldness to be faithful and loyal not to herod he was not afraid of herod Going back to how do we solve our problems? Conflicts come our way. Do we fear man that brings a snare or do we fear God? Do we make a personality-based decision or do we make a principle-based decision that's rooted in God's word? Well, we see from the example of John, John was committed. John looked at Herod and said, you're in sin. You've taken your brother's wife. That wife that you have, she's not your own. John was bold, immediately in prison. The text, the Gospels, Luke tells us that, that Herod was afraid of actually killing John the Baptist because many respected him and believed him to be the ultimate prophet, believed him to be even the Messiah. Herod did not want to revolt on his hands, so he imprisons John. Now we see this that John is exhibit A for how the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. Certainly the kingdom of heaven does. But I believe in a spiritual sense, the language may sound unusual to our Americanized hearing, our westernized hearing but I believe it's the language of Jesus saying to his disciples a little bit later in Matthew's gospel, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And it gives us this idea that where God is working, it's a spiritual work, and it's always advancing church. You can think about it like this as we think about God's kingdom at large and broadly. One thing we know for sure, regardless of what the headlines say and regardless of what is going on in in, uh, Russia, what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Mexico, what's going on at the border, what's going on anywhere in the world, the kingdom of God is always advancing. This makes a radical difference for how we think about life and godliness and passion and calling and commitment. Friends, we serve a kingdom that is imperishable. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom comes and goes. You can go to the British Museum right now in London, England and study half the history of the ancient world. There's more of Egypt there than there is in Egypt outside of the pyramids, like the actual Sphinx and pyramids. There's more of Babylon in the museums. You can go and study all of ancient history and they've all come. They've all gone. You can go and see the gates of Nineveh. You can go and see the gates of Babylon. You can go and see the very things that possibly Jonah and Daniel and others have seen. And they've all come today and they're Gone tomorrow. But you ever wonder, what is my life for? What am I doing? Does my life count? Does it matter? Absolutely. If you live for the cause and advancement of Christ and the gospel, fulfilling Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus tells us that we're to go forth and preach the gospel to every creature and to teach them all things whatsoever that He has commanded us and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Friends, this is it. This is the plan, this is the action. It's not more balloons. It's not more activities. It's not more carnivals. I'm not saying you can't use those things. I'm just saying the ultimate ambition of the church is not entertainment. It's preaching and teaching and confirming and discipling and raising up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is John's commitment, and friends, it's our commitment as well. I believe this is the second rendering and the more accurate rendering that we can take from this is the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. It's advancing. It's going forward. And it will not be seized by lukewarmness. It will not be seized by comfort and ease. It will not be seized. The advancing kingdom of God is not a place for those who want it in the recliner. I don't mean literally. I mean figuratively. Follow me here. Some of you say, but I love my recliner. It's the only place I can take my nap in. Well, good for you. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about it metaphorically. So, before you come to me at the end of the service, John is committed. Verse 13 For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who has come. And if he is Elijah, then I am the Son of God. I am the one who's been promised from Genesis chapter 3. I am Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I've come to save my people. From their sins. Now, we conclude with verse 15 here this morning with Jesus' final statement for this section. This is a, a, a phrase that Jesus loves to say He who has hears, ears to hear, let him hear. So, as we conclude this morning, turn to one last passage with me to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Sunday school class, you're not allowed to leave yet because we, we study this text this morning. Luke chapter 8. This is our final thought, our final connecting verse. Jesus turns that audience and says, Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I say to you, friends here this morning, Grace Church and visitors, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Look to Jesus and live. We've been looking at John the Baptist this morning, but John points us to Jesus. John says, he must increase, I must decrease. So we leave after studying John the Baptist looking to Christ, knowing that Christ alone can save. Now, in Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 8, we see what is the famous parable of the sower, or you could say the parable of the soils. In verse 5, very quickly we begin. It says, a sower went forth to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down. And the birds of the air came and devoured it. So very quickly, verse 5, there are some listening every time the word of people of God are gathered, every time the word of God is preached, there are always those who have hard soil for a heart. And when the seed, the the word of God is being broadcasted, we use that language in in a, like you turn on the radio to hear the broadcast, it it comes with the broadcasting of the seed, right? So when the word of God is broadcasted, actually, for some, it lands on the default setting of humanity, which is the hard heart. Secondly, verse 6, some fell on rock as soon as it sprang up, and it withered away because it lacked moisture. It was about an inch deep. Initially, there was a response. Maybe some hear the word, and they they respond, but they quickly go on, and they forget what it was all about. It wasn't a real response to the word of God. Verse 7, we see the third, and some fell by the thorns, but then the thorns sprang up with it, and they choked it out. For some of you this morning, there's been a spiritual battle taking place as I've been preaching the word of God. The word of God has begun to convict, reprove, rebuke, exhort in your own heart. The Holy Spirit's been taking his word and, and showing you his truth. And yet the affairs and concerns of this life, these weeds of uh, what's for lunch and some of these other things all begin to, to crop up. And they completely choke out what God's been trying to teach here through the message of the, the preaching of the word of God this morning. Then lastly, verse 8, consider what Jesus said in our other passage. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We come here to verse 8, but others, this is the good soil, but others fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. Now when Jesus had said these things, he cried, he heralded. Listen, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And friends, I commit this to you even today. Look to Jesus. He can save you doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what guilt you have. It doesn't, doesn't matter what burden you're carrying today. It doesn't matter the pride that's in your heart that keeps you from seeing your need of grace. Look to Jesus and he will save you. He will save you now. Run to Christ. Look to Christ. And he will receive you. Repent of your sins. Recognize his holiness. Recognize your need of his grace. And run to Christ and ask him to save you. And he will. He will not turn you away. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank you for the, just the word of God. and we pray in conclusion, Lord today, that you would give us good soil. Lord, for some, I pray that your spirit would continue to call to themselves, call to yourself and reprove them, rebuke them, exhort them. They will come and talk to me, come talk to others after the service that their heart would not be hardened. They would be soft and pliable and say, what about this? Can we talk about that? Will you pray with me? May we be able to counsel, Lord, many and bring many to the kingdom of God this morning. Lord, thank you for showing us from your word John's story, his calling, his character, his commitment. Father, as we consider our own lives, may we move from the theoretical to the personal. Lord, would you make us alive in Christ? Would you give us a passion as we think about this Is the greatest time to be alive? Oh, yes, many don't think so. But, Lord, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Lord, we are the least of these, and you've given us the privilege of stewarding your gospel. Would you fill us with this reality? Would you give us a passion for you? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.